We tried to make it so that if we have enough detail in there and it feels like a natural environment, when Arlo's in danger, you feel that danger because you know if you were there. But you feel like realistic danger is more dangerous than a world that we've never encountered before and is scary and unknown? Well, I mean, it, it, it all depends on what supports the story. So for this story, the environment is really the antagonist in the film. It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. I recently saw a stat on Twitter, I think, that kind of stopped me cold. The makers of the new Pixar movie, The Good Dinosaur, used more data in one scene than they needed in all of 2011's Cars 2. Massive amounts of data, terabytes and terabytes of data. And moreover, this data was used in the service of one element of the film that's getting a lot of praise in particular, the landscapes. The movie is set in an alternate timeline. Obviously, it's about a dinosaur and a human who become friends. But the set, the sweeping landscapes, are hyper-realistic. And it was massive computing power combined with actual U.S. geological survey data that made those landscapes possible. So, in a minute, along with our friends at the Pixar podcast, a conversation with the set designer for The Good Dinosaur, and a conversation with a data expert from the USGS. But first, as always, a number that caught our eye this week, it's the significant digit. Can I tell you a number? Sure. So the number is 65%, which is only 65% of employers are having a holiday office party this year. 65%. Oh. I don't think that's completely surprising. I think, you know, a lot of prices, especially in the city, are jacked up over the holidays for venues. Oh, interesting. And so I know that our company has moved our traditional holiday party to um, an award ceremony that's done either in January or February. So we used to do one every year as well, and it's no longer the case. And that was for cost-saving purposes? I think it was. I mean, who knows why, you know, what corporate's going to give is their reason. But, I mean, personally, I think that's that's why they moved it. Do you enjoy the office holiday party? I do like having the big, whole company-wide holiday party. And do you guys, like, roll out the good stuff? Are there, like, mini crab cakes and stuff? Uh, no, not usually. I mean, we usually partner with another company um, that's the, either a lawyer or a mortgage broker, and they... The lawyers bring the good food in the yeah. booth. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So that on the street was Caroline Bass, and here in the studio is Claire Malone, who's uh, newly arrived here at 538 as That's our right. politics reporter. That's right. Uh, and Claire, you're, we're going to talk politics yes. in the future, but yes. right now we're talking uh, <laughs> holiday office parties because it is that time Just of year. Just as important. Uh, yes, almost as important. Um, so that, that woman, Caroline, kind of pinned it on cost-saving techniques. So this survey, give us a little more context. This sure. survey, where did it come from? What do we know? And, and kind of why are the number of offices that are throwing these holiday parties dropping? Yeah. So this number comes from the Society of Human Resources Management. It sounds like a made-up 
name. It but, does. It sounds a little bit. It sounds like human resources <laughs> managers made up that name. That's, that's some HR talk right there. Um, but it says that this year, so 65% of offices are having these parties, which is actually down from 83% of offices having parties in 1998. And it's even down from 72% of offices having these parties in 2012. So that's a big br- drop in, in only three years. And what about the reasons for why this is dropping? Yeah. So the woman on the streets, you know, sort of said it's probably because of budget concerns. But actually, they found that only 6% of companies cited budget concerns this year, which is a pretty small number. In in 2009, right in the middle of the the recession, uh, it was 20% of offices who were saying we can't have these because of budgetary concerns. So in the recession, it makes sense. You would say we can't do it for budget concerns. Now, that means 94% of companies gave some other, like, what's the reason? Like, we don't like our employees? Yeah, there, there's there's the mystery. This Bloomberg article, which, started, which, which cited the study, sort of seemed to hint that people don't really like office parties all that much, which comes as a surprise to me because I like office parties. A 2010 survey actually said that, found that a lot of employees would rather get gifts than go to an office party. So maybe we're just reaching this, like, collective moment where we realize that, okay, we're all really busy anyway because there's so much else going on during in the holidays. Yes, it's a nice gesture, but we just kind of stand around awkwardly in circles and drink like cheap booze. True. Which again, you and me, we really <laughs> like that and we will take it if our bosses are listening. But yeah, well, if it's like give me a gift instead, then I guess it stands to reason that they're falling out of favor. Right. That's the utilitarian point of view, I think. Uh, Claire Malone, thank you very much. Thanks, Jody. <laughs> Pixar's The Good Dinosaur is out in theaters now, and from what I've read, one thing that's getting universal praise are the landscapes, these wide-open vistas that evoke Wyoming, Idaho, Utah. David Mounier has been at Pixar for a long time. He did visual effects on WALL-E, The Incredibles, Finding Nemo, lots of the big ones. And he was set's supervisor on The Good Dinosaur. It's weird to think of an animated film as having a set, but that's really the case with this one. These hyper-realistic open spaces that the two characters, Arlo, the dinosaur, and Spot, his human friend, roam around in are really like a set, like any other movie. You're about to hear an interview with David and then an interview with someone from the U.S. Geological Survey done by our new friends at the Pixar podcast. I should disclose here that this podcast is made by 538. 538 is owned by ESPN. ESPN is owned by Disney. And Disney also owns Pixar, which is frankly something I wish had occurred to me before I started planning this episode. It may have made booking the show a lot easier. But anyway, here is David Mounier, who joined me from Pixar headquarters in California. When we were talking, we were looking at a still of the movie together, a shot of Arlo and Spot standing on a ridge of a mountain with the sky and the trees before them and a huge scraggly mountain in the distance. You'll hear David talk about the foreground, the midground, and the background, all of which were rendered in this process of getting the data from real-world geological surveys into their virtual world. They call it pipelining. You can see that picture on our website now if you want to follow along. But here is David. So there's our standard pipelining, which gives us like a foreground to midground. And then on this film, we came up with a whole new pipeline of using uh, the United States Geological Survey data to be able to create these 50 to 100 mile vistas that we see throughout the whole film, often to the distance. And so we were able to 
really extend the range of what we could film on a shot-by-shot basis for this film. You were talking about the foreground, middle ground, and background, Mm -hmm. but why is this different from, I mean, I feel like I've seen wide open shots in other Pixar movies before. Sure. So, I mean, what we would normally do in a film is a lot of our time and effort on a film is usually going to be about the foreground to midground. So many of our films, if they're like if it's not a nature film, it's something where a lot of a lot of shots are inside rooms or in a city or some kind of environment where you don't see very far. But when we do have a big wide vista shot, like in Ratatouille, there's a shot of Remy the Rat standing on top of a building in Paris. And to do that, the sets team would build a small portion of Paris. And then once they had that, they would start manipulating that final shot to add more and more of the the buildings in Paris to try to really flesh out the whole the whole shot. But for this film, at the very beginning, our director, Pete Sohn, said he wanted to have these sweeping vistas for every potentially every shot in the film because he had grown up watching like nature type photography in films such as a black stallion or never cry wolf cry wolf where while the camera is following the characters it's really seeing the natural landscape in the background and they're framing for that landscape so every shot are these big sweeping vistas and we needed to be able to have our cinematographers virtually in the computer be able to frame and compose to the backgrounds. And then we needed to be able to light and render that and not have to go in after our lighting team had finished with the shot and then paint that into the background. Are you telling me that in this landscape, like every single, none of these trees are like a clone of the other tree. They're all like a real accurate landscape that then you could, in theory, just move around in? The mountain was is very iconic to the film. We call it Clawtooth Mountain, so that's uh, heavily art-directed itself. But the rest of the landscape, we found an area west of the Grand Teton range where we, we liked the valley, so we downloaded the USGS data for this area, and that forms the basis for what you see there. And Talk a little bit about, in a shot like this, how the USGS data would actually implicate a shot like this? I mean, mm-hmm. is this an actual rendering of a place in America that exists that based on actual geological survey data? So what we did was we thought of it like it was a live-action film. So if we were filming a live-action film, we would take script pages and give it to our location scout team, and they would go out and shoot photographs of different areas and give that to the director and say, which of these areas do you want to shoot in? And so what we ended up doing was a virtual computer simulation of that where we downloaded these tiles of USGS data and then gave it to our virtual camera crew to move the camera around within that landscape and then find a place that the director liked. What did the actual USGS data come to you as? Is it a Excel spreadsheet? What, what's, what's the actual uh, data? There, there, um, there's a, they, they store it in a few different data formats. I think we downloaded their, like the digital elevation model data set, which uh, I believe it's all uh, in like an ASCII mm-hmm. set of, of data that's, that's formatted a certain way. And then we wrote a, a little uh, quick conversion script so we would convert it into some, like a tighter binary format so that as our camera team is trying to compose shots, uh, they would be able to read in the data, and then we would only 
essentially draw the data in front of the camera so they could kind of move the camera around and see what the background was going to look like and then pick their shots. We would add in additional rocky detail on the terrain, and we would add more rocks and stones and brush and grass and trees and rocks. And so we have extra code that's reading in that same USGS height data and then creating the final look of the film. You use this geographical data, but I read you also use an Ansel, Ad- like Ansel Adams photography? Well, for the Dinosaurs Family Farm, it's really the Jackson Valley area at the base of the Grand Teton. And when we were trying to show a proof of concept with, well, how could we, how can we really sell this to the director as using the USGS for making our this world? So Andy Grisdale, who was one of our previs artist was and and layout cameraman he pulled up this Ansel Adams photo that he took when he was working for the National Park Service back in 1942 with the Grand Teton and the Snake River and he's like well I'll bet I can kind of pick where Ansel Adams took this photo and so he moved around and he put his virtual tried to match the camera lens as best he could and put it in the same place and then uh, when we pulled it up for, for Pete Sono, director, Andy pulled up the Ansel Adams photo, and then he cross-dissolved to our actual USGS version of the terrain. And, and everybody was blown away that we could get something that was that close to representational of what the real world was. Talk a little bit more about that, that relationship between the director and the sets team and the sort of mm-hmm. order of operations. I mean, does the director decide, okay, I oh, I think I want the camera to move this way, and then you guys, as quickly as possible, s- sort of give a sense of what that looks like? Or were there ever moments where you were saying, hey, here's the world we've built, play around in it and find a shot that you like? Um, so we, we could actually do a little of both. So what we would the way we would approach it is – uh, before we would get into a particular sequence, we would sit down with the director and find out what his vision of that sequence is going to be. And, and a lot of that comes from our storyboards. So our, our story team would be drawing what they think this world should look like for a sequence based on their interactions with the director. And then uh, Pete, our director, would sit down with, with us and our art team, and we would have one of our camera crew go into the computer and pull up potential USGS trains to say, like, do you want this kind of background or that kind of background? And they would they would probably spend a couple of days of coming up with various locations that might fit the bill. And then we would show those to Pete and he could pick which location he wants. And then once he's picked that, then we would start fleshing out that world and putting in more of the foreground dressing of representing thousands of trees and like the foreground to midground. And we could give that to our camera layout team, and then they would start filming within that location. So why was that exciting to you to try and do something as realistic as possible? Because I feel like so much of what's great about a lot of Pixar films is that they create a world that you've actually never seen before. And it felt feels like you guys were – every push was to go towards being more accurate to the real world. I mean in this film, the – the set really becomes another character and Pete wanted it to be the adversary in the film. And so as much as the character design of Arlo and Spot are something that you can really have empathy for and they're, I mean, they're, they're beautifully designed characters and you really feel for them. But then when they're walking through the landscape, making the landscape, even though it's not 
truly photorealistic. We really try to just put in as much, only as much detail as we need, but it still, we tried to make it feel as natural as possible so that when Arlo's in danger, you feel that danger because you know if you were there, if we have enough detail in there and it feels like a natural environment, then you feel his, his danger and the, and what could possibly happen to him. But you feel like realistic danger is more dangerous than, you know, a world that we've never encountered before and is scary and unknown? Well, I mean, it, it, it all depends on what supports the story. So for this story, it was really about Arlo being lost in the, a wilderness where he's never been before and he's this young kid and trying to figure out how do I get home and how do I survive? And, I mean, that's something that as humans we can relate to, even though he's a dinosaur, and so as a with a natural landscape you you relate to that and you really understand that quickly and when we're working on this film and our our director Pete Sone really talked to us about the environment as being a character because it's really the antagonist in the film you're using modern uh data from the USGS and mm-hmm. But this this film takes place in an, an, an obviously an alternate timeline where humans sure. and dinosaurs exist at the same time, and yep. humans kind of haven't altered the landscape in the way that they have now. So, did you ever have right. moments where that was a challenge, where you had to kind of imagine like what would this land look like realistically, but realistically in this alternate l- timeline? Uh, well, I mean, in terms of the look of the landscape, I mean, we. We we went back and forth a bit about, like, should it look like our current world? Should the plants look more, like, prehistoric? But we ended up going with something that was more recognizable to the normal viewer. I mean, there are dinosaurs or farmers, and so we have crops like corn in the film where people can recognize that and know what that is. But then for the landscape itself, we really tried to mimic the beauty that was already there. So because... Uh, Pete Zone and then our director of photography, Sharon Callahan, just loved that particular area of the Pacific Northwest. They really wanted us to try to capture that as much as possible. So we tried to, we worked with our production design team to pick out what kind of trees to put in, like aspens and cottonwoods and lodgepoles that exist there to try to capture that beauty as much as possible. Did you get to go out to those parts of the U.S.? Uh, I didn't this time, but uh, they, like early on, the the director and the and the art team went with the, their story team, and they went and really took a look around and took a lot of photos. And so we looked at at all their photos and and video reference and and talked to them a lot about what they wanted to be. But what's it like to have this relationship with this landscape that you've never actually been in? <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny because I mean we've and this happens even on our films where it's not a. Like realistic, so I was a set supervisor on Wally, and so like a trash planet and a and a spaceship are not real either. But we really, we really end up connecting to it, and it's funny because like on a film like this where we're trying to mimic the natural world, every time any of us on our sets team would go on vacation, we would end up we end up looking at things differently because we're trying to mimic like basalt rocks and certain kinds of pine trees and aspens and. And as we go out in the world, we actually, while we're working on the films, we start looking at things differently and we start noticing things that we're working on and how that's mimicked in the real world. And that that happens to us all the time while we're making these films. I can tell that you took this leap in terms of creating this world and using this immense amount of data. Mm -hmm. You know, I I couldn't help in reading about this thinking about um, No Man's Sky, which is this video game that's coming out next year and is getting a lot of buzz. And it's kind of a game that created its own internal 
logic and is actually rendering worlds without the creators act- actively working on it because they've sort of mm-hmm. created their own internal physics or whatever. I, I mean, sure. do you feel like that's where your line of movie making is going? Do you want to give up that much control? Uh, I mean, there. I mean, we have people that work at the studio that do. Um, they'll they'll work on computer code that will in real time generate landscapes and and so we've seen a lot of that kind of work and we're actually inspired by that to see uh how far people can can push the computers to just create new worlds and and new looks and and for every one of our films it'll always come down to uh like what kind of world does the director want and what does the production designer want it to look like and and no matter how realistic or stylized it is we'll end up like figuring out what technology do we need to make that happen? And in this case, it was the USGS, which helped uh, help save us and make those backgrounds. David Mounier was set's supervisor on The Good Dinosaur. Now, when I started researching for this podcast, I reached out to Derek Clements, who hosts the Pixar podcast. It is not officially affiliated with Pixar, but it is, as you probably guessed, all about Pixar and their movies. Turns out he was also working on a show about Data and the Good Dinosaur, and he told me he'd done a really cool interview with someone at the U.S. Geological Survey. Not really about the movie, but just about how they collect their information and the kinds of maps and data sets they make and how those are used in the real world. So here's about six minutes of that interview with Derek Clements of the Pixar podcast talking to USGS program director Mike Tischler. So, yeah, walk me through exactly how you would update these things. What are you actually looking for? What data are you collecting? That's a good question. So my background is not necessarily in cartography, so hopefully I'm not going to go too out of line on this. Okay. But, for example, the, the contour maps is what gives us the elevation. Uh, or the, Let me rephrase. On a topographic map, the way you would see elevation is by represented by contour lines. But that elevation's got to come from somewhere. So uh, back in the old days, there were surveyors that would go out with tripods and they would use transits and all sort of uh, first order surveying methods to be able to uh, to be able to draw those contour maps. Now we can fly sensors that collect that elevation, that, that elevation data. Um, in the past, that the resolution of that data would be about 30 meters. So you have one elevation number every 30 meters square on the ground. Uh, and that's we have all of the country covered at basically that level. But 30 meters isn't that good anymore. Sure. So under the 3 d program, we're trying to bump that up to about one meter. Uh, wow. And the, the amount of applications that feeds and the decisions that informs nationwide is spectacular. Yeah. Things that you would have, uh, you, you really can't envision. It's so hard for me to envision all the applications that feeds. Huh. So, so these sensors, are these like drones that you guys send over and stuff? No, it's, it's usually on a fixed wing aircraft. So an airplane okay. uh, or in, in some cases, satellite for some of the older elevation data. The trick is with drones is that's going to be really explosive market over the next 5, 10, 15 years. The, the issue is that now you have a lot of what we call contributed data. So you could have a drone collecting LIDAR or some other elevation product in your backyard, ah. but we don't know what kind of quality it is. We don't know what specification. We don't know what metadata, which is the data about the data, uh, what data was collected, what format, what, uh, what resolution, what sensor it was. So it's very difficult to come up with sort of this seamless elevation data set for the country with a lot of different pockets of data. So what we're trying to do under this 3D elevation program is – pull our resources so that we can we can grab data at large scale hmm. to a way that we can use it. So they collect to a common specification, which allows all the pieces to fold in together. And it, it, it's sort of like putting all the puzzle pieces to create that one big puzzle. How available is that data? Like, like could any pretty much person go and download all the stuff that you have? 
Absolutely. It's all a big mission of the USGS is that we want to provide freely, uh, freely available data to the public and the, the most accessible available way that we can. What format is it in on, on the website? If you were to try to download it, it sort of depends. We produce a, a lot of different types of data. Our, our sort of flagship program right now is a thing called 3DEP, the 3D elevation program. And that's looking to create a nationwide high resolution elevation data set that's from coast to coast. The kind of data that you would download in that is from a sensor called LIDAR, and it could be a LIDAR point cloud. It's what the, the, the technology refers to it as. And there's a, a particular format that you would download that data in. However, that can be gridded into something like an image. It's called a digital elevation model, and that can be produced in, a, in some image formats like a JPEG or a TIFF. And then on the other hand, we have what we call our cartographic products, things that you might you know, call a contour map or a topographic map, things that you would have gone hiking with or you might plan your vacation around or gone hunting with, those are now produced in a digital format and those are available on what's called a geo-PDF. Hmm. It's like an Adobe PDF, but it's got a lot more features in it that people that are a little more, want to have a more geospatial interaction with it can do. How much of the U.S. Um, is mapped in that way you guys have data for? All of it is mapped. We try to refresh all of the U.S. on a three-year cycle. So every okay. three years, the entire uh, entire country gets mapped. So we just finished our second cycle. And there are some caveats to that. Alaska, for example, it's a big state and uh, they have a lot of challenges, particularly with elevation. So there's a lot of maps up there that haven't been updated in 30, 40, 50 years. Huh. So we've been going over the last few years trying to collect the sensor data that will be able to allow us to update things like elevation and contour maps yeah. and hydrography for Alaska. So does the USGS also do like maps where they label like places? I, I, I guess I assume so, right? Well, we, we make the maps. We make the, the these topographic maps that you're, you're probably familiar with. And then a lot of the, the, what we would call layers that you would see on there, the transportation routes, the buildings, the structures, and uh, a very interesting subset of that is the geographic names. And what mm. is the authoritative name <laughs> for a particular river or a mountain or, or a stream? And that's a, a whole other ball of wax that I find just fascinating. It would change over time, doesn't it? Like a, a certain river might've been called something a hundred years ago that it's not called now. Right. So the, one of the, the cool things that I get to do is I serve as the Department of Interior representative to the Domestic Names Committee of the Board on Geographic Names. It's a really long title, but what it is, is a, it's a little slice of government that's just most people have no idea exists. And they're looking at what should be the authoritative name of a lot of the features that you're used to seeing across the landscape and that show up on these topographic maps. Most of these are physical features like mountains or rivers or creeks. There's a lot of things that go into it. It could yeah. be the history of the culture of the area. We're also finding out that a lot of names that had been named in, in the past are Turns out now they're derogatory. So we're trying to remove those names and replace them with names that are that are uh, more appropriate for the situation that might even represent some of the native heritage of those areas, yeah. uh, as well as features that form. It could be a new oxbow of a lake. It could be you know a, a new pond that, that shows up that's maybe a man-made pond. It could be a natural pond. But those features all need names. That's Mike Tischler of the USGS talking with Derek Clements. On our site, you can find a full link to this week's episode of Derek's Pixar podcast, which has lots more on data and the good dinosaur. You can also find pictures and video of the film to get a sense of those sweeping shots, 538.com slash podcasts. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel. Sarah Patterson is our intern. She's technically not our intern anymore, but the next few shows she worked on. So Sarah Patterson is our intern. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. Jordan Shulkin helped with video. My name is Jody Avergan. You can email me at podcasts at 538.com. 
Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. Find a link to download our theme song on our website. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client and give us a rating and a review. Thanks to everyone who's given us reviews lately. It really does help our ranking, which helps others discover the show. Thanks for listening. See you soon. What's the Point listeners? I'm Chadwick Matlin. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Neil Payne. And together we make up the crew of Hot Takedown, 538 Sports Podcast. Kate, how would you describe the show if you had to do it in like five seconds? It's freaking awesome. Okay, Neil? We take down hot takes. Look at that. That's we- sort of the title. Good point. <laughs> so if you want to hear us talk about the week in sports news and what people are talking about in an uninformed way and ha- hear about the data and the stats and the analytics that take them down, subscribe in the iTunes store, search for Hot Takedown. To find us, we'll talk to you then. Do it.